This is Nomina's Mental Health Mavens, where each week we bring you guests from the mental health addictions and holistic care community to talk about different issues and treatment modalities. Now, guests' opinions are their own, and some content may be triggering. With that, today's guest is Lisa Kalko, who is here to talk to us about polyvagal theory. So let's welcome Lisa. Welcome back, Lisa. It's good to see you again. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, polyvagal, I know when you first mentioned that topic to me, uh, my head went in a in a sexual direction, and that's not what it is. <laughs> so can you start by letting us know what is it and, and how does it work? Give us a brief overview. So polyvagal theory specifically means kind of, you know, it's an evolutionary neuroscientific psychological approach to understanding the role of the vagus nerve in emotional regulation social connection, and fear response. It was originally introduced by the work of Stephen Porges around 1994, although he had been working on that long before. The polyvagal part specifically is what most people tend to ask, because as you identified, many people think of it as kind of a pseudosexual term, when really poly meaning many and vagal meaning the wandering vagus nerve or the vagus nerve that is thought to wander through our body, which is actually the longest cranial nerve that is the primary component of our primary or our parasympathetic nervous system. So it's funny because polyvagal actually started around 1969 when Dr. Porges' early work was identifying heart rate variability, and he was monitoring the physiological state and noting that it might be helpful to guide therapists through a clinical interaction. So at that time, he was kind of noting because he's a bit more of a neuroscience person. I mean, a bit more is a neuroscience person. Um, But at that time had noted that the response to the human and the physiological states were something that were being stimulated. And so following that and kind of getting a sense of what was being stimulated, what was the reaction, and really just observing those facial cues, those body cues, those kind of responses that the body was giving, allowed us to note that there was a response in the nervous system through social connection. So tracking that and studying that, that's when we started to see, much like the work of Gabor Mate or other sort of researchers, um, Alan Abbas, for example, who does the intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, really starting to see that the physiological cues, the body cues that were happening from the nervous system could be, you know, signs or windows into therapeutic interventions or, you know, harboring stress states and affected by stress states that could be also targeted to help improve in therapeutic interventions. So I know in my own situation, and I've talked about this before, that for me, and I talk therapy is amazing for a lot of people, but for me, it was the somatic work. My nervous system was so wired for sound. So is this something that would be appropriate for that? Yes. Especially since what we know is that polyvagal theory really helps us to understand how our nervous system is wired and what limits our behaviors. And so when we're not feeling safe or when we're feeling in danger, we're going to be more acutely responding to something. And so that's where it's really important for us to understand how our nervous system is wired, what it's responding to, and what it might be perceiving as a threat or a danger and activating that flight or fight response within us. And so what we know is that in our flight or fight response, kind of primordially, we have this kind of activation that happens when we're sensing danger. And I always joke, you know, that we're long past the days of the saber-toothed tiger. But sometimes our brain doesn't know that. And so when we grow up in situations or environments with, say, adverse childhood experiences or other sort of places where our threat system is kind of hyper-aroused or in constant um, activation mode, we have that fight or flight engaged and it's kind of on. 
So when we kind of look at that, that can increase our stress capacity. It can do one of two things. It can cause a great deal of resilience, but it can also cause us to override our stress response. And so nowadays we know that we're not going to be chased by the saber-toothed tiger. We're not going to be in imminent danger. However, we're also not working through that stress response. So if you imagine a saber-toothed tiger is coming, we're going to run. Our body is going to discharge a lot of that activated emotion or that, that adrenaline that would happen and not have it be stuck in our muscles in the same way. And I know we've looked at this before, even in some of your talks with Daniel, where we've kind of looked at these somatoform disorders or the stress responses. So when that happens, the stress, the level of stress will rise, our physiological reflexes will kick in, and then we would physically release that. When we're not having that physical release, it can get stuck and or stored in our body. That's where we kind of have those responses where over time, our body is trying to regulate itself back into a state of homeostasis. And our autonomic nervous system will kick in and, you know, the peripheral reflexes will try and help to regulate us and we'll try and move through that stress response. Sometimes, however, when, say, our vagus nerve is not operating optimally or has been exposed to prolonged stress, we're not able to regulate in the same way. So that would explain when I go, when this one, actually, this happened quite a bit. (laughs) I would find myself in a situation where I was stressed and overwhelmed and silly little things like I was in the Home Depot trying to pick out a countertop and ended up frozen and crying and completely overwhelmed. And Mm -hmm. I, and I didn't understand. And there's no amount of talk therapy could help me work through that. I'm, I'm physically so stressed out to the point that I can't take one more thing. And I just lose my mind. Exactly. Because your brain is already over capacity or at capacity. And in that part, you know, where we're recognizing that maybe you weren't able to activate that other part of that homeostasis or that kind of that parasympathetic system that would help us move into rest and digest because it was just at overwhelm. And it was kind of like, you know, when we joke the, the straw that broke the camel's back, it's like those benign triggers that are really just one more trigger to a series of those little T traumas or those big T traumas, those shock traumas that might happen where, you know, is already increased our capacity and we just don't know how to process that. Okay. So then how can we use polyvagal theory in our daily lives? And I did promise uh, viewers some exercises that they can do or some tips. Definitely. So using polyvagal theory in our everyday life, you know, the part of it is really about stimulating the vagus nerve. And that part is dubbed the parasympathetic system or rest and digest system. So we really want to help to cultivate that and optimize that and, you know, kind of helping it to stimulate the other organs that it controls through our body. Because really, as I said earlier, it is the longest cranial nerve. And so when that becomes disrupted or when it becomes, you know, um, challenged, then it can prohibit us from actually getting out of those stuck frozen states. So when we're looking at that, what we want to do is we really want to focus on understanding that integration. And so when we're looking at, you know, the heart, the facial expressions, you know, even what's happening with our breath, all of those parts can help us, you know, kind of move through and understand getting out of those stuck responses. So polyvagal theory kind of provides us kind of three neuro circuits that support different types of behavior. One being social engagement, which you know, behaviors that happen in a safe environment, fight or flight, which is the immobilizing behaviors, and then shutting down, which is kind of that second level of defense. We know that unresolved trauma 
will create that high tone dorsal or sympathetic system or blend of both. And when we're in that kind of safe and secure mode, you know, perhaps when we're not at Home Depot, even though Home Depot is a fairly safe space. I want to acknowledge that for the folks who really love Home Depot, we are not saying Home Depot is a problem. However, you know, there could have been something in your system in responding to that choice, having to make a choice that may have mobilized a fear or flight mode response. And then when it just got so overwhelmed, it went into an immobilized mode. And so that's where that parasympathetic or kind of ventral vagal state is activated. In introducing that, what we want to know is those feelings that can be associated with that, as you were kind of describing like that numb, frozen, we can see folks in disassociated states. We know that the dorsal vagal system has taken control. Emotionally, it feels like we may, you know, have some hopelessness or some dizziness. Sometimes folks will have a sense of shame. They might feel trapped, um, disconnected. Sometimes people are just, you know, if you're driving on autopilot and then you're like, how did I even get home? We might have difficulty kind of communicating the words and or, you know, and we can see that in their facial expressions. So if, you know, if somebody was with you and they kind of looked at you, they're like, hey, Joanne, are you with me? That's always a cue to kind of note that something may be happening. And so, you know, what we can do is start to do some strategies, both therapeutically, understanding those arousal states, as well as on our own time. And there's some really great, um, there's a great article here by Jordan Fallis that I have that we can post to our web um, that is actually about how to stimulate your vagus nerve. And that will help us to just really, and I use these strategies all the time in our therapeutic work to just help us kind of stimulate that in a way to help increase the, the connectivity and the communication happening along the vagus nerve to help promote that mind-body connection. And then also being able to use that heart-face read, you know, the intuitive interception awareness that we have connecting with other humans. Hmm. That sounds a lot like almost like a combination between the somatic work and the ISTDP that you, uh, that practice that you do where you, you're watching and you're looking and you're, and you're, you're an active part of the process. Yeah, they're very, very similar. And so I would probably not say that they're, I, I would, I would not necessarily say that they're different as much as they kind of lend and or work very similarly from uh, different neuroscience research. And so you're absolutely correct in that in the ISTDP work, we are looking for those activated responses. We're really looking for what the nervous system is doing in that connective intuitive way. We're also accelerating you know, that piece of what is the human condition? What is the human response? What is the behavior or defense that's happening or the activation of anxiety? What is causing or contributing to it? To help folks be able to integrate that learning for themselves and to see for themselves how they may be acting or reacting in a moment so that when it does happen next time, they're aware of their physiological cues. They're aware of their body cues. And so what polyvagal theory is trying to do is it wants to emphasize that it can be an autonomic nervous system response and that we are constantly engaged in defense activities. Very similar, as you said, to ISTDP, which is sometimes we'll be avoidant, sometimes we'll close people off, sometimes we'll react in, say, ways that don't feel in alignment to us promoting that social engagement. And that can happen as traumatic situations or prolonged threats are there. And that can cause harm to our physical or mental well-being. So we, you know, ISTDP is kind of similar to the work of polyvagal in that we want to understand why are we acting or reacting in the way that we are. And, you know, polyvagal theory is just another way of explaining the nervous system component to it, which is 
taking all of this great work, I mean, as I said, I love Gabor Mate's work and, you know, the wisdom of trauma and his new research out in just highlighting that these theories are not necessarily new. There has been that mind-body connection. For time in memoriam, our ancestors have known that. However, it's really become so much more front and center right now because we've lost touch with that. We've really tried to like medicalize everything. Not that that's a bad thing. In fact, I think, you know, one of the greatest things we can do as scientific observers is collect the data, observe the data, hypothesize the data, test the data and see if we can repeat it. But in doing so, we've kind of, I want to say in some cases, thrown the baby out the bathwater or if it isn't reproducible or somehow, I mean, Stephen Porter's work has gotten a lot of criticism around, you know, the the defaults or the deficits that it's observed to have. And yet it doesn't really negate the fact that these principles seem to be really effective. They seem to be really helpful. They may not make perfect sense. I'm not saying that because again, I'm not a neuroscientist and I won't speak to the vast sums of really skilled and specialized neuroscientists who are trying to understand it. However, you know, that piece of it is, it does have some really solid foundations in therapeutic practice. Mm-hmm. I know I fought my doctor on being medicated. Uh, I did not, I knew, I just knew there was a better way to get through everything than to take the medication and be numbed out. I really mm-hmm. wanted to embrace it, go through it, feel it. And I'm so glad I did. Cause even now I, I can recognize when I'm getting stressed out, I'm getting triggered. I'm, you know, emotional things are happening because I've done the work and now I know how to recognize them and get on top of them. Definitely. Um, Okay. So what about specific exercises that we can do? Yeah. So there's this great article that um, we'll have kind of that's from Jordan Fallis. And, you know, what he does is he highlights how to stimulate your vagus nerve for better mental health. And I love this exercise because I think it has some really great resources on how to support some of the work that you're doing and how to support that vasal, that vagal tone. Interestingly, you know, one of the first things that is identified in this is cold exposure. And so, you know, cold exposure has been shown to activate the vagus nerve. And in that particular part, it's very similar even to Wim Hof strategies or the DBT strategy of, you know, intense exercise and cold or change in temperature, I should say. So what we know is even that, you know, cold water on our face, or I will oftentimes recommend like keep an ice pack, you know, just have something by you if you're fine, like, or, you know, cold hands on your kind of more sensitive, vulnerable parts. However, you know, what we see is these principles are not really new. In fact, they're just repackaged and or kind of longstanding through different ways. And so in this particular one, it recommends kind of doing 30 seconds of a cold shower and just seeing how you feel and then increasing that incrementally over time. And so it's one of those great ways of which you can actually start to promote increasing that that vagal tone. And so with that, um, you know, we also have deep and slow breathing, thinking again to our mindfulness exercises where we see a lot of those coming in, um, just even again, that breath, those breath exercises. Um, Again, a lot of this stuff is not new, but it's been shown to reduce the anxiety of the parasympathetic system by activating the vagus nerve. And so those mindful, slow, deep breaths are another way to really help stimulate that part of our vagus nerve. Box breathing, I know Daniel did uh, talk on that one once before, you know, super, super fascinating, really helpful. Now, this one I love, and I say that because in in part of our um, outpatient programs, as well as in our inpatient program, we actually have sound and music therapies. And when we're doing the sound therapy specifically, 
we make people sing with us. And I used to use singing all the time um, when I was growing up. It was a great way of which I had kind of moved through a lot of my own trauma. And um, I remember I was working with uh, one vocal trainer who I used to send clients to all the time. And they were like, what are you sending me to a vocal trainer for? It's like, trust me, it works. And there's so much research that actually supports singing in groups or singing as a way to help us unlock or, you know, move through difficult experiences or traumatic emotions. As crazy as it sounds, it promotes, again, that deep breathing, that active listening, but also singing, humming, chanting, gargling, any of those things that really work our vocal cords or the muscles at the back of our throat, they can help to stimulate this vagus nerve. And so that has actually been shown to also change the heart rate variability and vagal tone. Not only that, there's such pro-social conditioning, which happens in that kind of um, experience when you're singing with other people. Doing a lot of work right now in the psychedelic assisted therapies, we're seeing again, that same important of music, humming, vocal, chanting, these ritualized practices that are not just there because, you know, they're, they're hokey or because, you know, they're just like a good idea. Rather, they're really bringing together a melange of these elements that are what I would call high yield non-pharmaceutical options to help promote that mental health and well-being. Another great one that we have is probiotics. So again, thinking about like nutrition as a building block or a staple of our overall health and well-being. And so probiotics are thought to help stimulate that good gut bacteria, improving our brain function, and then ultimately, you know, affecting the vagus nerve. And so there's, you know, and I, I won't pretend that I'm a, a nutritionist or a dietitian and speaking to which ones where, but just kind of knowing that there's some really good, you know, tests and research and things that have been studying, you know, that good uh, gut health as being linked to positive mental health. And they've actually done some really fascinating research on fecal transplants on rats that have showed that when we have like that good gut health is like the second brain, we can have such increased pro-mental health support. And, you know, similarly, omega-3s, you know, what I'm referring to those, like it, there's great research coming out that supports that omega-3s have been linked to reductions in depression. And one of those reasons is because the high fat in omega-3s you know, thinking about again, like those ketogenic diets and those kinds of things um, is, is primarily found in the fats, good, healthy fats. But those omega-3s specifically help to, to lubricate the neural pathways in our brain like a slip and slide, which increase the delivery of the neurosignaling. And so when we think about that, you know, we oftentimes know that that's so critical to optimizing our mental health. And the last one I will speak to is kind of, you know, I mean, is exercise. I mean, there's other ones such as um, massage, you know, again, that kind of touch and meditation, which is similar to um, even the work as we discussed with the mindfulness practice. But exercise, again, I link that back to those DVT strategies, you know, intense exercise, where having that opportunity to stimulate that closed loop of our activated nervous system response, moving through that activated adrenaline, and helping our body discharge that is so helpful, not only from our hormonal balance, but even just in terms of stimulating our vagus nerve, which has that overall positive effect because we're increasing the heart rate variability again. So it's not just about the intense exercise. Like nobody wants to go and be like, oh, I'm going to go like get my heart rate up. But we should be. We should be focusing on getting our heart rate built up, increasing that blood flow, increasing that oxygenation that then helps us with our breath and everything else. 
And then, you know, maybe reward yourself with that massage at the end. <laughs> well, that's encouraging to know that I'm doing the most of it. My husband makes fun of me all the time because I put apple cider vinegar into my soda water. <laughs> <laughs> for good, good gut health because right? I know that, that's that's the thing yeah and I mean and so much of Stephen Porch's work really comes down to that social connection which is another hugely important strategy that we can't emphasize enough when we're looking at that therapeutic work which is you know really building on that space of how are we connecting with other humans you know are we laughing are we engaging are are our systems reading and responding in such a way that we feel supported, encouraged, resourced, connected? It's one thing to have lots of, you know, distant engagements. I appreciate social media has helped us to stay connected in ways. And as we're also seeing, it's almost a false connection in some regards because we're not able to really be in that intimate space or that what I call intimacy that intimacy with other folks that allows us to read the heart to heart, that allows us to read the face to face, that really allows us to be connected. So as much as I appreciate even platforms like this that allow us to get our messaging out, it's still that important place of being connected in social environments with other humans where we can read that energy and that you know stimulation will help us to really relax our nervous system response because we're wired to connect. We want to connect in the most heartfelt ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Thank you. And now, is there anything you wanted to add in closing? So one thing I do want to kind of mention is that polyvagal is not just a simple kind of like theory of relaxation. It's not like something where we're just trying to say, you know, we want to go in, we want to have always these relaxed states, because in fact, when folks have activated or, or kind of prolonged trauma, even, you know, I've heard um, folks who mentioned like they can't do yoga because it's just, it's too activating for them. It's one of those things we want to recognize that it is possible to strengthen our nervous system that has not yet grown up or is still kind of dysregulated by trauma, but we need to do so in a really kind of what we call pendulated way. Um, and those pendulum exercises can be useful in that they're intentionally trying to bring oneself out of a relaxed state into light stressors or safe stressors that they can learn how to process and reprocess back into a safe state. And so by oscillating between these, we can help the nervous system learn that it can activate and relax more quickly. It's very similar to some of the work that we do even in ISTP, you know, which is that intensive short-term part where we're exciting, we're creating a response, we're activating a response, and we're helping the unconscious and subconscious reprocess the attachment, the, the safe space, the acknowledgement that Another human is bearing witness to the specific and then being able to help them navigate or guide their old response, replacing it or, or reprogramming it with new responses. In that regard, it is very important to do so in a safe therapeutic space. So it's not something that I would recommend anybody just go and be like, hey, I'm just going to go try these exercises or you know, expose myself to additional stressors because that could actually be harmful. Similar to yoga, you know, where we're talking about like yoga is fantastic and I love it and I use it all the time. I will oftentimes joke that, you know, uh, 90 minutes of, of, you know, sweat yoga is far more effective than me in some regards or as effective as me. However, it's not for everybody. So having great interventions poorly timed could be more harmful. It's really about understanding how we're activating that stress response in a way that allows us to increase our function and titrating it in such a way exposure part of it, the exposure to stress, 
is done so in a really systematic, thought out, safe way that supports our overall health and well-being. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I'm going to link that information that you shared in the in the description and then in the show notes on the podcast. Um, yeah, please do. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you again. 